Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Willie, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three. One, two, three, Neds. Yes, we're up to the three Neds. We did Ned the first in the previous episode, and we're on to Ned the second, Edward the second. It's a funny one, this, because ways we look at history change over the years, and, you know, what history is supposed to be, and what sources we're supposed to use and trust. And that approach to history changes. And during the 19th century and into the 20th century, there was this idea that you shouldn't be looking at personalities. You should be looking at you know, big political movements. You should be looking at the forces of history. You should be looking at facts and figures. And at personalities doesn't come into it. In recent years, we have had a return to, to narrative history, to storytelling and to looking at people from history as people and trying to understand them on an emotional level. And the interesting thing about Edward II is that I don't think you can look at his, his story, his reign, without dealing with personalities, because so much of what he did was based on his relationships with the people around him, with his wife, Isabella, and with these two favourites that he had. First of all, Piers Gaveston, and later on, Hugh Dispenser the Younger. And you can't look at Edward's reign without trying to understand Edward's relationship with these people, and also his relationship with the barons. So by this time in history, we're getting into the 14th century, which, for those of you like me who always have to do the maths, that is the 1300s. Uh, so we're getting into the 1300s, 
We're getting on for nearly 250 years since William the Conqueror's invasion. We're about a quarter of the way through this story of the British monarchy. So we, we have moved on from the monarchy being direct Norman invaders. They have much more integrated into the country. And we have a lot of these barons who have been there for a long time with these lands that they've been granted by William. And they're thinking of themselves as old school and established. And I talked in the previous episode how, at least in my mind, the the Edwards feel like the first properly sort of anglicised rulers. They've lost a lot of the lands in France, so they're concentrating much more on what's going on in England. We've seen how Edward I was named after the last great Anglo-Saxon king, Edward the Confessor, and he calls his son Edward II. Although Edward II was not really expected to take the throne. He was the last son of Edward I and his wife, Eleanor of Castile. And he was either the 14th or the 16th child that they had. Some of the details of the daughters is a bit lost in the mists of time. But certainly Edward and Eleanor had a lot of children. And Edward was the youngest and therefore the youngest son. And certainly when he was born, he wasn't next in line to the throne. Sadly, most of Edward and Eleanor's children died very young, including all the boys apart from Edward. But their son Alfonso, which still makes me laugh, was still alive when Edward, who became Edward II, was born. So he was not particularly expected to be king. So that's the world that Edward was born into. There is a famous apocryphal story about Edward II's birth. All of these English kings have spent their time not only campaigning in France, but campaigning in Scotland, campaigning in Ireland. They're also campaigning in Wales. But Edward I, following a couple of uprisings by the Welsh princes, decides once and for all to settle this and goes in very heavily and takes over the whole of Wales and builds these huge castles, one of which is Carnarvon Castle. And the legend of Edward II's birth is that he was born in Carnarvon Castle and was presented to the Welsh people as a baby by King Edward I at the battlements. And he says, here you are. This is what you wanted. Here is a Prince of Wales that was born in Wales and can't speak a word of English. Of course, he's a baby, he can't speak a word of anything. So it's a bit of a jest. And according to the legend, the, the, the Welsh thought this was most amusing and took to Edward I and Edward II. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a great lad. He's funny, Edward. Great sense of humour. This is a totally apocryphal story that was made up in the 16th century. For a start, Carnarvon Castle hadn't actually been built. There were just some foundations at the time. And at the time, Alfonso was the heir to the throne, not young Edward. So this idea that this was the first Prince of Wales and that ever after that, the, the heir to the throne has been the Prince of Wales is a made up thing. Later on, David Lloyd George, for the investiture of Edward VIII as the Prince of Wales, made up this sort of cod medieval ceremony, including a striped crusader tent and an awful uncomfortable sort of uh, panto costume for, for poor Edward who didn't like the experience at all. And I remember as a schoolboy watching the investiture of Charles as the Prince of Wales in a similarly weird made-up ceremony. 
which I think did take place in Carnarvon Castle, which has been finished since Edward II's time, although it's obviously largely ruined now. And I remember very vividly that ceremony and all the sort of pomp and circumstance. He didn't have to wear a medieval costume and they had designed a sort of modern version of the Crusader tent, um, which I think Snowden had designed, this weird perspex structure. So that's the sort of, at least the origins of the idea of the heir to the throne being the Prince of Wales. And not all the heirs to the throne after Edward II have been called the Prince of Wales, but um, this was the, the start of it. And certainly he was born in Carnarvon, and I think that was important. I think uh, Edward I, his father, was making a statement there. But it was more, look, we are now ruling you, get over it. And poor Edward had a pretty miserable childhood. Uh, he was often ill. His sisters were married off youngs, despite being the 14th or the 16th. He was pretty lonely. His mother died when he was seven. We saw in the last episode how devastated King Edward I was when Eleanor died and how he built these monuments to her. But what's interesting is that there's no real mention of how he felt about so many of his children dying, particularly all of his sons except Edward. Who knows? But he wasn't around much. So Edward II has this lonely upbringing, but he has a certain amount of tutoring, although history at the time sort of claims that he was a bit dim. He hadn't learnt very much. And also the Dominican friars were very present in his upbringing and through his life they were very loyal to him. But he grew up to be tall and strong and handsome. He was quite athletic. He was very interested in horses and horse breeding, became a very good rider. He also loved dogs. And also through his life, he got involved in activities that weren't considered suitable for a member of the royal family. He liked swimming and rowing, which were seen as sort of peasant activities. A king wasn't supposed to row, he was supposed to be rowed by someone else. And he, he got into doing things like ditch digging and building walls very much like Winston Churchill, actually. He used to relax by doing some bricklaying. But Edward seemed to, to like the activities of the ordinary people, and he didn't want to do those sort of royal things. He loved to do blacksmithing as well. And he hung out with the ordinary working man. He was very happy chatting to his servants and his grooms and ploughmen and farmers and ordinary soldiers. And, and this was considered not done at all. You know, he was supposed to just talk to the barons and the lords and the ladies. But there was also a streak of cruelty and bad temper in him, which he seems to have inherited from his family. He could be very vindictive, but he could also be, you know, incredibly passionate and loyal, which went against him because he became addicted to his favourite. He dressed expensively and flamboyantly. Uh, there was a sort of a bit of tutting going on about that. And he seems to have um, been influenced by his friend, Pierce Gaveston. I have to be careful when I say Pierce Gaveston because I always try and call him Pierce Gaviscon, which is not a bad way of remembering him as Pierce Gaviscon. Edward also was apparently very witty and had a marvellous sense of humour. I won't give you any examples that are quoted about his sense of humour because to modern sensibilities, they're not particularly funny. <laughs> yeah, he seems to be, on the whole, a pretty decent, ordinary bloke. The one thing he didn't get into 
was jousting, uh, and this was sort of slightly held against him, that he wasn't quite manly enough, despite being tall and muscular. But probably he wasn't allowed to joust. He is the, the last surviving heir to the throne, and jousting is pretty dangerous. So it's possible that he was sort of um, castigated for, for doing something that was actually forced on him by his father and by the court. He was made officially... Prince of Wales when he was 13 in 1297 at one of the parliaments in Lincoln. We're in a phase in history now where we have regular parliaments that were in Edward I's time. They would still travel around the country with Edward, but under Edward II they became fixed in one place, usually at Westminster, but on this occasion in Lincoln. So it's not till he's 13 that he is made officially Prince of Wales, which means that he is officially going to be his father's successor, and he acts as regent in England while his father is away campaigning in Flanders. In 1299, he's betrothed to Isabella, who is the daughter of King Philip IV of France. And this is very important politically for, for Edward I and the, the Plantagenets, because we have this ongoing dispute with the King of France as the kings of England are trying to hold on to their last surviving bits of land in France. But the French king is enormously more wealthy and powerful and influential, and England is becoming a bit of a sort of backwater. So it's quite important for King Edward I to form this strong bond with the king of France. And so he gets his son Edward betrothed to Isabella. In 1300, when he's 16, Edward II is involved in his first proper military experience, helping out his father in Scotland. He's involved in the siege of Caerleverock. His father, Edward I, seems to have approved of him and liked him, a thought that his son was going to go on to great things. But they had some kind of an argument over Edward I's treasurer, Walter Langton. It's possibly, and is often characterised, that Walter was angry at Edward Jr.'s lavish and extravagant lifestyle. But whatever the case, the two Edwards fell out and never properly reconciled each other. And Prince Edward developed a lasting hatred for Langton and got his revenge on him later. And it's around 1300 that Pierce Gaviscon enters the story when he joins the royal household. Pierce Gaveston's father was a knight in the service of King Edward I. They were from a Gascon family in southern France. They weren't high-born noblemen, but neither were they working men. But uh, he was a knight in the royal household, and his son Piers joins in 1300, which is when Edward meets him and everything changes the story of Edward's life flips. A contemporary chronicler wrote, Upon looking on him, the son of the king immediately felt such love for him that he entered into a covenant of constancy and bound himself with him before all other mortals with a bond of indissoluble love firmly drawn up and fastened with a knot. There is a huge amount of speculation and literature about their relationship between Edward and Gaviston. And it centres on the fact of were they having a homosexual relationship? Certainly, there was an immense bond of love and devotion between the two of them. 
Whether this went as far as being a sexual relationship, we don't know. The modern consensus is that there probably was, because the modern consensus is that everybody was homosexual. <laughs> Sorry, that's an exaggeration. But, the, you know, we're, we're dealing with a very different time, and there wasn't even a concept of, of homosexuality. There was just this idea of sodomy, which was an unpleasant activity that men sometimes indulged in. Both Gaveston and Edward were married. In fact, Gaveston married Edward's niece. They both had children, both legitimate and illegitimate. But of course, being married and having children is no proof that you are not gay. And, you know, Gaveston fits some of the gay stereotypes, shall we say. He dressed flamboyantly. But, you know, like Edward, he was something of a tough guy. He himself was very fond of, of jousting, and he loved nothing more than humiliating those barons in court who, who disapproved of him by defeating them in jousts and tournaments. It's, it's very difficult to talk about this in a sort of positive light, because obviously modern sensibilities, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being gay, which there isn't. But at the time, there was. It, it was a sin. And therefore, if I talk about accusations, I'm talking about how this was at the time. But the accusations of homosexuality or bisexuality came from later on looking back on Edward. And perhaps some of this was trying to discredit him, to put him in a bad light, to justify what happened to him. So we don't know the truth. But as I say, certainly this was a an extraordinary love affair. One of the greatest modern screenwriters is Aaron Sorkin, who wrote... Um, the West Wing and many other TV shows and films like The Social Network. And he's a brilliant screenwriter. And he also teaches screenwriting. And one of his rules of how to create a character, a vivid, believable living character who is compelling, is to ask yourself as a writer three questions about them. Which is, what does this character want? What is stopping them from getting what they want? And thirdly, what would happen if they got what they wanted? And it's really interesting if we apply this to a real person like Edward. We say, what did Edward want? What was stopping him? And what would have happened if he got what he wanted? And, and it's really interesting in Edward's case that you have two things and they both play against each other. So what Edward wants is, firstly, obviously, he wants to rule England. He is the king and he wants to carry on doing that. Secondly, he wants to be with Piers Gaveston. Now, the problem with Piers Gaveston is he's not one of the Anglo-French aristocracy who have been settled, as I said at the beginning, for 250 years and have got their lands and their estates and their power at court. He's seen as an outsider coming in. He's not even on their level. Edward promotes him to this position of great power and authority and allows him to be his kind of chief advisor and everything that he does starts to be for peers. And therefore, he wants to rule England, but he also wants to be with Piers Gaveston. And if he wants to rule England, he can't be with Piers. So that's what's stopping him from being with Piers. And if he wants to be with Piers, he can't rule England. That's what's stopping him being with peers. 
The other thing that's stopping him are these old school barons who do not like Edward giving so much power and authority to this outsider. And uh, this goes right through Edward's life. And you keep wanting to say to him when you're reading the history, you're saying, Edward, what are you doing, man? What are you thinking of? Have you learned nothing from what happened to your ancestors, who all seem to have got locked into this battle, this conflict with, with the barons, with the, the ruling classes? And if they didn't properly learn how to placate them and keep them on side, it led to enormous problems. And Edward doesn't seem to have been able to do that because whenever he agrees anything with them, it all goes out the window because he wants to do something else with peers. And he wasn't a strong ruler. He wasn't a strong and authoritative king. And we looked in the last episode about this idea of, of alternating between good king, bad king, between strong king, weak king. And back in the medieval period, what made a good ruler the ruler had to be a tough guy. He had to lead armies in, into battle. He had to smash in the heads of his enemies. And this is what made a good king. They had to be the strong man. And a bad king was one who didn't do that, preferred to go swimming and rowing and dig ditches and just be an ordinary person. That was not respected. And yet, you know, in our modern world, that, that we would say, oh, it's marvellous, you know, that... Um, Prince Charles was into his gardening and making biscuits. But actually, you know, the cult of the strong man obviously still exists, particularly somewhere like Russia, where Putin is trying to embody the spirit of the strong man, the great tough ruler, um, following on from Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great. And this is despite of, or perhaps because of, the fact that he is a little tiny fella. He's only about five foot seven tall. I loved those photographs of him with his top off in his combat trousers, puffing out his little tiny action man chest uh, with his big gun. You know, I am the strong man. And, you know, his economic policies have, have entirely failed. And so he's tried to impress his people by leading an army into the Ukraine with disastrous consequences. And he's not alone. You know, we have um, Orban in Hungary tapping into the same sort of rhetoric. Erdogan in in Turkey. We haven't managed to have a sort of tough guy, strongman monarch in Britain for a very long time. But we are drawn to the idea of someone who speaks their mind and doesn't do what the sort of lefty intelligentsia want them to do, which is how someone like Boris Johnson takes power in a very English way. He is channeling that idea of, I won't take any nonsense. I'm going to sort things out for you. But he's doing it in a sort of flim-flam, whiffy-woffy English way rather than the leading an army into battle Putin style. Through English history, we've had Henry II, tough, pulls the country together, sorts out the finances. Richard sort of carries on doing that, although he's mostly away campaigning, but he is very much a Putin figure, a strongman figure. And then we get John come to the throne, who's portrayed as this snivelling weakling who suffers the ultimate humiliation of signing the Magna Carta, this contract with barons, the earls, the aristocracy, about the limits of his power. And then his son, Henry III, takes the throne, and he carries on making the same mistakes as his father, and he carries on having to be forced to sign yet more charters, such as the Ordinances of Oxford. 
But then comes Edward I, who is like the reincarnation of Richard I. He's the strong man. He's the military leader. He gets back some respect for the monarchy. And then comes Edward II, who repeats the same mistakes that John and Henry made of falling out with his barons, constantly having to do contracts with them, which he immediately breaks. And he doesn't seem to have learned any of those lessons. And he seems to have mainly thrown it all away through his devotion to Piers Gaveston. In 1306, King Edward I knights young Edward, Prince of Wales, in a lavish Arthurian ceremony. Now, Edward I used the Arthurian myth to give credence to the idea that he should legitimately be ruling in Wales. He claimed that Merlin, who was a Welsh figure, had made a prophecy that King Arthur would return and that Edward is Arthur reincarnated. So, as I say, he has this cod Arthurian ceremony called the Feast of the Swans, where he knights a load of people at the same time, including his son, the future Edward II, and several young men roughly of his son's age who were going to play major roles in the rest of his reign. So amongst the other young men knighted are Piers Gaveston, Hugh Le Dispenser the Younger, Roger Mortimer and his uncle Roger Mortimer. As I say, a lot of people through this period ended up with the same names, but um, Roger Mortimer plays a huge role later on. Well, they all do. Gaveston, Dispenser and Mortimer. And much as I often mistakenly call Pierce Gaveston, Pierce Gaviscon, I also have a tendency of calling Roger Mortimer Bob Mortimer. So um, apologies if, if I occasionally slip, but it is a way of, of remembering him and who he is. So, so look out for Bob Mortimer when he returns to our story later on. So by this point, Edward and Piers are very close. Yeah, yeah, a great, he's a great chum, Piers. Yeah, a, a very, very good friend of mine. A great guy. Yeah, love him. Love him to bits. So during his reign, Edward wasn't particularly accused of homosexuality. Um, the Chronicles of Mo Abbey from the 1390s, which is later on, simply note that Edward gave himself too much to the vice of sodomy. It's through Piers that Prince Edward has another great falling out with his father when he, he goes to him and says, uh, I'd really like to give some of the royal estates in France to, to Piers Gaveston. How would that be? His father, Edward, flies into this terrible screaming, frothing at the mouth rage, tears out clumps of Edward's hair and promptly exiles Piers Gaveston, kicks him out of the country and off he goes. To France. But the next year King Edward I dies on his way to Scotland ready to do battle with, with the Scots. He dies near Carlisle. Edward becomes king. He recalls Gaveston from France, marries him off to his niece Margaret and indeed makes him regent of England. Rule in his place whilst Edward is away in France marrying Isabella. Isabella was a fascinating character, one of those powerful medieval women who were denigrated at the time for being unladylike. And Isabella features in Helen Castor's wonderful book, She-Wolves, about these women who couldn't hold ultimate power in their own right 
but who were more powerful and dynamic than their kingly husbands, who they often turned against. And Isabella was no exception. In a lot of literature, she's portrayed as this sort of femme fatale figure, the original scheming evil queen, beautiful but cruel. Now, she's only 12 years old when she marries Edward, who's in his early 20s, and it's very much a political marriage. There's no hint that they would have been in love. It's an arranged marriage. He's don't think he's ever met her before. Things start to go wrong between them right from the off. Firstly, her father, King Philip of France, doesn't like Edward and doesn't give him the lands and monies that he was expecting as a dowry. And then, after they're married, Edward brings Isabella to London for a combined coronation and wedding feast. A very lavish do where they even had a wine fountain. But Isabella does not have a good time. She and her royal retinue think that she's been snubbed. Edward completely ignores her and spends all his time chatting to peers, who's dressed to the nines and seems to be a more important figure at the ceremony than Isabella. I mean, it's perhaps understandable that Edward spent the feast chatting with peers because Isabella, let's face it, was only 12 years old. Now, while Edward's waiting for Isabella to be old enough to have children, he seems to have spent time with various different mistresses. And he fathered at least one son, Adam. Isabella eventually has her first child in 1312, when she's 18 years old, and they call him Edward. So during this time, Gaveston is sort of almost running the country. And he seems to have been pretty good at it. He seems to have been a fairly capable ruler. He was reasonably tough, but he was very unpopular, as I say, with the local barons because he's seen as being usurping their position, particularly when Edward gives him Cornwall. He makes him Earl of Cornwall, which is a big and a reasonably wealthy estate. And this is what Edward does right through his life. This land that should have gone to the faithful old guard either takes it from them or when he acquires it legitimately, instead of giving it to them to keep them sweet, he gives it to one of his new favourites who were part of Gaveston's circle. So they're enraged when he's given Cornwall and in a parliament of 1308, the barons rule to exile Gaveston and Edward reluctantly agrees to exile him to Ireland. And he goes down to the port with all his court to see Gaveston off, but not before appointing him as Lord of Ireland. So it's not really a sort of a desperate exile. He's been sent to essentially run Ireland, which he does fairly well from an English perspective, not from an Irish perspective. He brings the power of England to bear on Ireland. Edward immediately goes to the Pope and says, look, can you help me? I want Gaveston back. And another parliament is called where Edward pretty much agrees to all of the baron's demands. He says, look, I'll do whatever you want. Make any changes you want. You can have as much power as you want as long as Piers is allowed to come back and stay. And they reluctantly agree. So Gaveston comes back and carries on making a nuisance of himself and making enemies at court. As I say, he likes to engage the other barons in jousting, but he also makes up crude nicknames for them. 
And amongst the sort of old-school barons and earls is the Earl of Leicester. It's really confusing, and I talked about this before, uh, in terms of history and in terms of Shakespeare's history plays, is that the characters are all called after the areas that they ruled. So they're all called like York, Warwick, Leicester, Lincoln. And it's particularly confusing because if you then come back to look at the history of another king, they're all called Leicester and Warwick and York, but they could be completely different people. So it's quite hard to identify them sometimes. And perhaps this was partly why Gaveston made up these uh, nasty nicknames for them as a way of remembering who they were. So the Earl of Lincoln, he called Burstbelly. The Earl of Pembroke was Joseph the Jew. I've no idea why he called any of these people these things. Um, and the Earl of Warwick was the Black Dog of Arden. And Warwick seemed to be particularly pissed off at being given this nickname. And he warned Gaveston, he said, just, you know, don't forget that dogs can bite. Lancaster and Warwick led a particularly powerful faction in England. Lancaster was actually a cousin of Edward. He was the son of Henry III's son, Edmund Crouchback. Edmund again being an old Anglo-Saxon name. And if you remember, one of the disastrous things that Henry III tried to do was to take over Sicily. It was Edmund who he'd wanted to rule the country, but he was unsuccessful. So Edmund's son is called Thomas Plantagenet, and he is the Earl of Lancaster, the Fiddler. So I'm going to call him Lancaster the Fiddler as a way of identifying him. The Earl of Warwick, the Black Dog of Arden, was a guy called Guy de Beaumont. Members of his family had been part of the royal family for many, many years. So Lancaster and Warwick, the Fiddler and the Black Dog, are the main two to stand up against Edward. And, you know, you do wonder that perhaps Lancaster, as a royal descendant, at the back of his mind is thinking... You know, if we could get Edward out of the way, I could legitimately rule. And in fact, later on, during all this unrest, Lancaster does get to rule the country for a while, but he's pretty hopeless at it. Um, so that doesn't go terribly well. So we have this series of parliaments where the barons are trying to curtail Edward's activities and they're trying to get rid of Gaveston and his huge power block. And, and, you know, either overtly or, or subtly, this is in the wording of these charters. Gaveston is exiled again, and he's not allowed to be on any lands that the king might have claim over. So he can't go to England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales. Uh, he can't go to parts of France. But again, as soon as he's gone, Edward is trying to get him back. Edward, meanwhile thinks he might try and do something in Scotland. Since his father Edward I's death, the war in Scotland has been forgotten. The Scots have been allowed to get on with what they're doing. Robert the Bruce has proclaimed himself king and is becoming fairly powerful. Edward thinks he ought to do something about it. He has a very ineffective invasion where Robert just keeps retreating and hiding and the English army is kind of all over the place and eventually they have to come back so this again loses him money it loses him power it loses him the respect of the people and the barons so he comes back to England and he just can't cope without Gaveston and he basically tears up the paperwork he says I don't care what I agreed to Gaveston is coming back and this time he's going to stay at which point the fiddler 
and the black dog rise against him. And this is the start of a sort of civil war in the country. Edward, his wife Isabella and Gaveston retreat northwards up to Newcastle. They get split up and Gaveston abandons Isabella and a lot of the crown jewels and he's captured in Scarborough. And he's captured by the Earl of Pembroke. And he does a deal with Edward to say that he is safe in his protection. The laws of chivalry will apply and no harm will come to him until he receives a proper trial. And Edward agrees to this. Pembroke takes Gaveston down to his castle. But he is called away on business and Warwick, the black dog, arrives and delivers his threatened bite. He removes Gaveston from Pembroke's castle, takes him onto his own land near Warwick and executes him, cuts his head off, leaves his body where it lies out in the fields. Some Dominican friars pick it up and look after it, but it is a few years before it gets a proper burial. Now, this action of Warwick is seen as really not on. Pembroke is absolutely enraged because he had made these assurances. He had sworn that Gaveston was safe and under his protection. And Warwick has just trampled all over this. So Pembroke is extremely angry with Warwick. And Warwick's faction starts to lose its support and people are more moving over to Edward's side. Pembroke joins Edward's faction and the power of the barons is um, reduced as Edward gets a great deal of sympathy. Pembroke comes over to his side and he manages to arrange a peace between Edward and the barons and they agree to stop the conflict. Edward will agree to what the barons want as long as they will support him in an invasion of Scotland, which he sets up, although Lancaster the Fiddler and Warwick the Dog markedly don't join this campaign themselves. They have to send some men, but they will not be there in person. But unfortunately, there are problems in France, as there always are. Philip is threatening Gascony, and Edward goes over to try and sort things out over there, at which point Philip puts on this big show of wealth and power, and the two of them make up. Edward gets involved in this vast knighting of some 200 knights, as Philip is trying to show, look, I am much more powerful than you. Edward sorts things out there as well as he can, returns to England and with the help of the Italian bankers and with the help of the barons, he manages to raise taxes. And for the first time in his reign, there is a bit of stability and he's able to get on with doing a bit of ruling. Seems okay at it, but he is insisting on this attack on Scotland particularly when Robert the Bruce manages to take over a couple of castles that are being held by the English, particularly at Edinburgh. Edward goes up with a big army, not really expecting Bruce to engage him in battle, but he does at Bannockburn, which is this great triumph for the Scottish. And the English get kind of bottled up. Edward doesn't use his army well. Instead of using his powerful archers and putting them at the front of the army, he puts them at the back where they can't do very much. They're in a quite bottled up position. He tries to send his cavalry to attack the Scottish infantry, but they have these long pikes and they form up in close formation and they cut the cavalry to pieces. Edward fights well and valiantly. He loses a horse from under him, carries on fighting, and eventually Pembroke has to lead him away before he's killed. And he goes on the run back into England 
and this gives Lancaster and Warwick the excuse they need to really try and take over and take power. Lancaster takes charge of the government, pushes through various ordinances, charters and treaties, but um, he's not really suited to governing. Things get even worse when there's a famine in 1314 and there's bad weather for the next seven years and harvests are washed out and the English economy is absolutely hammered. Now, I haven't really talked a lot about that side of things, particularly about agriculture, but the wool trade in England has been incredibly important and has led to any wealth that Britain has had right through Europe. English wool sells at a premium and we have the perfect climate and countryside to rear sheep. And it gets to be a bit of a problem. We get a lot of the, the barons and earls are taking over agricultural land from people who rely on it for food and to make a living and are turning it over to sheep pasture. So it's been fairly controversial. But now we hit this period of famine and wool exports stop. So the income from wool plummets and unscrupulous types start hoarding food, hoarding grain. As the price goes up and up and up, as it's more scarce, Edward and the barons try and deal with this, but fairly ineffectually because gold is powerful and this is capitalism at work. So Robert the Bruce capitalises on this himself and invades northern England, pushing down, which leads to full-on civil war in England. And now we get the problem where Edward takes up a new favourite at court. This is Hugh Dispenser, the Younger. And the Dispensers are marcher lords in charge of this buffer zone between England and Wales known as the Marches. So they're a sort of military force who act as a defence against the Welsh. They're quite powerful. They've been closely involved in royal dealings through the generations. But Hugh Dispenser and his uncle, who are the two most prominent now, are pretty nasty pieces of work. They are cruel, ruthless, ambitious they latch on to Edward. Edward forms another close relationship with Hugh the Younger, makes him his new favourite, makes the dispensers the new favourites at court. Between them, they start confiscating barons' lands and giving them to the dispensers and their cronies. They treat people very, very poorly, and inevitably things go from bad to worse. The rebel barons are still strong to start with. They manage to get Hugh Dispenser exiled. He takes up as a pirate in the English Channel, attacking French boats. And he even attacks Southampton with a small navy. And as I say, full war breaks out. To start with, Edward is pretty successful. He manages to beat the barons and capture Lancaster the fiddler. And he tries him. But the fiddler was not allowed to speak in his own defence which set a very bad legal precedent and led to quite a lot more of these trials over the next few years where captured noblemen aren't allowed to speak at their own trials. And then this is sort of part of the breakdown of the sort of proper chivalric laws as well as the laws of the land that had been put in place. And like many other noblemen to come, the fiddler, the Earl of Lancaster, is found guilty of treason at this kangaroo court and beheaded. So while this is all going on, in 1324, the King of France invades Gascony, 
which is the area in southwest France which has been very important to the English kings for so long. So the next year, in 1325, Edward II sends his wife Isabella to Paris to try to make peace terms, and she takes the young Prince Edward with her, the future King Edward III. And while she's there, she joins up with Roger Mortimer, and the two of them become very chummy, and probably their great love affair starts here. And they start plotting against Edward against Isabella's husband with the ultimate aim of getting rid of him and putting Isabella's son, Prince Edward, the Prince of Wales, onto the throne. There's a report that one of the British bishops, the Bishop of Hereford, preaches a sermon in which he says that Edward II is carrying around a knife on him so that he can kill Isabella as soon as he sets eyes on her. And apparently if he had no other weapon, he would crush her with his teeth. Uh, so, yeah, that marriage is not going very well. 1326, Isabella essentially invades England alongside Mortimer and with young Prince Edward in tow. King Edward makes a run for it, taking with him his closest remaining friends, counsellors, advisors, whatever, including the two dispensers, Hugh the Elder and Hugh the Younger. They get as far as Wales. They're trying to get to Ireland, uh, but they are captured Hugh the Elder is very quickly hanged. And just to make sure of it, he's also beheaded and his body is cut up and fed to the dogs. Uh, the younger dispenser, Hugh, the sort of Piers Gaveston Mark II, is eventually brought to trial in Hereford. While he's awaiting trial, he apparently tried to starve himself to death. But I think he may have run out of time because he was still alive when he was taken into Hereford to be executed. He obviously knew it was going to be a stitch-up and that he was going to be treated badly, and he was right. He was taken to the Market Square in Hereford, where Roger Mortimer, Isabella and various Lancastrian lords are waiting. Uh, a list of charges are read out, some of them valid, some of them a little bit trumped up. He was judged to be an enemy of the realm and a traitor uh, and of returning to the realm when he was banished stealing £60,000 from two great ships. This was his period when he was sort of acting as a semi-pirate in the Channel. So as a thief, he was sentenced to be hanged. And on top of this, as a traitor, he was sentenced to being drawn and quartered. So he was brought out of captivity, he was stripped of all his clothes and had biblical verses written on his skin before he was dragged by four horses across the city to the walls of his own castle where a scaffold had been erected. In one later account of the execution, it was claimed that he had his genitals sliced off, but this was only in one account. But what we do know is that um, he was hanged, uh, but before he was dead, he was cut down. Then he was opened up and his entrails were slowly pulled out. That's what being drawn means, to draw out the entrails. And then he was cut into four pieces, which is the quartering and those pieces of his body were sent all around the country to be um, put on display. So that was the end of Hugh Dispenser, and it was pretty much the end of King Edward II's reign. Uh, Isabella and Mortimer were essentially in charge. Edward was locked up in a castle. His son, Edward, Prince of Wales, is being prepared to take his place. But there are various... Um, 
attempts to get Edward freed, particularly by the Dominicans, who he'd been very close to when he was younger. So they kept moving Edward, and eventually they gave up, and he mysteriously just died in the night, and not a mark was found on his body. So that looked like he hadn't been murdered, but accounts soon started to emerge of this story that they had heated up a poker till it was red hot or possibly a long, thin sword. They had then inserted a trumpet into his rectum and thrust this red hot piece of metal up inside it so it wouldn't leave any scorch marks but would essentially turn him into a human kebab and destroy his insides. So that was the sad and pitiful and degrading death of King Edward. Died in 1327, 43 years old, 20 years on the throne, killed by a red-hot poker up the arse. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th, streaming on Hulu. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. And my guest on our episode today is Rory Cox, who is a lecturer in medieval history at the University of St. Andrews, specializing in English medieval history, especially the history of war, but has also published on war, ethics, torture and terrorism from the ancient to the modern world. But uh, keep it light, Rory. Yeah? <laughs> I'll try my best. I'll try my best. No, well, there's, a, there's going to be a little bit of torture, of course. But Well, well, exactly. I mean, the, the one fact that everybody seems to know about Edward II is how he died. But even that is a bit disputed. It's whether... always the hot topic, as they say. Yes. <laughs> I mean... What is the consensus on that? I mean, is, is that what happened to him? Should we, should we get straight into this? Uh, yeah, yeah okay, so, this, so, so, so this is obviously the theory that Edward was murdered at Berkeley Castle with a, with a hot poker up his uh, anus, uh, <laughs> which obviously is a pretty terrible way to go. Now, there's a sort of variety of theories about why one might want to do this to, to Edward II, or, or rather, who wasn't Edward II by that time, of course, because he'd already been deposed. He was just Edward of Carnarvon. But one idea is that it, it alludes to his sodomy or the accusations of sodomy and his uh, homosexual relations with the likes of Piers Gaveston and, and Hugh Dispenser. Mm. We, can, we can discuss those more later. Yeah. Um, that's undoubtedly one sort of uh, idea connected to this method of death. The other is that it wouldn't leave any noticeable marks, yeah. that you, it's a way of murdering the king without actually leaving a sort of a physical scarring of his body. Um, 
Both of those are problematic, though. The first is that, you know, it, it very much conforms to the sort of salacious gossip that medieval mm. chroniclers are very <laughs> enthused about. <laughs> um, and, and so we can't necessarily take that at face value. Also, the truth is, is that the, the story of the Red Hot Poker doesn't really come about until a couple of decades after Edward's death, really until mm. the 1350s. And most of the more contemporary chronicles don't actually mention it at all. Um, the, the second reason is that, you know, if you wanted to kill somebody without leaving any marks on their body, there are other ways of doing it and much less uh, sort mm. of sadistic and... Uh, but not as symbolic. Ways. But not as symbolic, yeah. And actually, one of the you know one of the chronicle accounts actually said that they stuffed you know pillows over his face to suffocate him, and then inserted said <laughs> poker. Um, but that you know, and that was also to muffle his screams. Mm. But of course, you know, if you wanted to kill the king without leaving any marks, you could have just used the just pillows suffocated. and suffocated him. So where's I think you where's know, the fun in that? Exactly. I mean, so obviously the story has been repeated by historians, particularly you know historians who, who you know wanted to sell books. And things, because it's a great story um, but it's probably not true if I had to put a bet on it I would say it's probably a fabrication uh, I'm, I'm gonna have to stop getting historians onto the show because they always ruin all the good stories <laughs> but it probably didn't happen I mean the fact is like everything in history you know we're dealing with uh, probabilities rather than certainties yes. Um, so, you know, if you choose to, to believe it, then then that's entirely your prerogative, Charlie. <laughs> well, it can't be proved either way. Ever. Absolutely, it can't. No. And Edward's body was actually never formally displayed either. So, um, again, there's no mm. uh, absolute proof either way in terms of people seeing the evidence on the body. Although, of mm. course, he would have been dressed in his clothes, so they wouldn't yes, have seen it. Anyway. It wouldn't have been face down. <laughs> He'd suffered enough indignities by that time. Yeah, yeah. So, at the time of recording this episode, uh, we've just had the coronation of Charles III, and a weekend of coronation-based festivities. And it would have been the first coronation that most people in Britain would have witnessed. So, how how similar, how different would it be to one of these medieval kings like Edward? In terms of pomp and the circumstance, then absolutely there's similarities there, not least in the venue, uh, because Westminster Abbey, of course, played a sort of a central role mm. in uh, English coronations for centuries. I mean, these were taken incredibly seriously and were sort of seen as a, an opportunity for displaying power, for showing patronage, and basically just to sort of present the new king to his people. So... You know, there definitely would have been points of familiarity that even Edward would have recognised in the coronation ceremony that just happened, even more so with uh, Elizabeth II's mm. coronation, which stuck to a more traditional format in lots of ways. Because that was like an hour longer than Charles's, wasn't it? And a couple of people I've been talking to said, well, do you know what they cut out? Was it more religious stuff or was it more of the sort of weird holy oils and anointing and... That side of it. They certainly cut out some of the more um, overtly religious, you know, numbers of prayers and things like that. Mm. Um, but also the thing that, that takes a long time would be the presentation of the lords and fealty and gifts. Right. And this was something that was actually uh, removed. So, you know, even in Elizabeth II's coronation, you had the presentation of uh, bullion, effectively, um, <laughs> by the peers of the realm to the monarch as a symbol of their homage. And Charles, of course, decided to do away with that this mm. time round. Um, so that obviously saved quite a lot of time because there are a number of peers of the realms. So. so presumably that would have actually been 
in many ways, the most important part of Edward's coronation was the seeing who's loyal to him and making sure they stay loyal to him kind of aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, there's two elements of it. I don't think we should underestimate the importance of the ritual itself. So Edward II was crowned in, in 1308 and, and he was crowned with his wife, Isabella, and they walk barefoot to Westminster Abbey, uh, sort of along this sort of pathway of, sort of flowers and things like this. And the ritualized element, the, the religious element, this idea that the king is being anointed with, with holy oil, that he's taking on a sacred responsibility, that he's invested with the various kind of regalia of state, again, was seen as incredibly important. The symbolism of fealty and of homage, but as you say, was, was absolutely central, though. And this is a chance for Edward to take the sort of the loyalty of his peers um, and to see who turns up. But of course, everybody would turn up. It's easy for us to think now, because of Edward II's failures as a king, mm. that he came to the crown in a sort of a, a miasma of negativity. But that's not <laughs> true at all. You know, people had very high hopes for Edward II. You know, he was young. He was meant to be very handsome, he was tall, he was athletic, he seems to be being reasonably charismatic. So, you know, there was no sense of negativity, really. Gaveston was already there, but there was some negativity uh, around Gaveston already. But I think people genuinely thought that once Edward is crowned, you know, once he's got his queen, he'll basically do a good job. And I don't think they were had anything less than sort of optimistic hopes for him. Um, so everyone certainly turned up and, you know, these occasions were highly ritualized and it was all about status and prestige. Mm. And this is where Edward actually, according to the chroniclers, basically already starts to go wrong. Because right. in all of these occasions, you know, where people stand, what people hold, the gifts that they present, the functions that they perform in the ritual, that was all signaling to the audience how important they were. Right. how powerful they were, how close to the king they were. And Edward completely messes up because he allows Gaveston to completely steal the limelight. Mm. And we're even told that Gaveston dressed in imperial purple, <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, you know, going back to the Roman emperors, you know, purple is associated with sovereignty and power. And Gaveston apparently rocks up dressed in purple and trying to sort of outshine even the king himself. And we have to remember that at this point, Gaveston is, well, he, he was never high nobility. He's from Gascony. He, he came from kind of minor nobility, but, but he's certainly not a peer of the realm. And he is given the honor of placing the right spur onto Edward's foot, which again, you know, considering that we're, we're talking about an age of knighthood, you, know, you literally get given your spurs when you become a knight. This is one of the most prestigious functions within that ritual and it's given to Gaveston. Therefore, it's not given to someone who effectively is socially superior to him. So, of course, this causes or bad blood. And then he's also given the honour of carrying the sword of mercy in the procession following the coronation. So again and again and again, Gaveston is kind of elevated to positions which others feel they have the right to hold. And this causes a huge amount of dissent and, and I mean, it, it, it's really interesting at the at Charles's coronation that the standout star of it seems to have been Penny Mordaunt, who yes. managed wearing quite elaborate made up robes of some sort, managed to hold one of these swords aloft for 
50 minutes or something. Quite a heavy yeah. sword. Yeah. And it's fascinating to think that goes right back to then and everyone thinking, who's holding the sword? What does it mean? Are they a good thing or a bad thing? And you know, with Edward with Gaveston, it begs a question, and it's a question I keep wanting to ask all the way through his reign with Edward, is what the hell was he thinking of? Edward combined some potentially positive attributes, I think, um, with some potentially negative attributes. And one of the positive attributes was loyalty to, mm. to his friends. I think he probably would have been quite a good person to go down the pub with. You know, right. uh, you know, he liked a good time. He liked entertainment. He liked minstrels. He liked people who made him laugh. He seemed to have, you know, for a medieval king, he had a remarkable lack of concern for social hierarchy in terms mm. of who he would converse with and who he would spend time with, you know, and, and actually that becomes a real point of criticism. His nobles think that, you know, it's, it's not appropriate for him to talk to peasants and to go swimming with commoners and to go fishing with his um, uh, sort of low members of his household and to go drinking with people in pubs. You know, th these are all seen as very negative aspects of his personality. And yet probably in reality, it meant that he was actually probably like quite a, quite a guy, nice guy to hang out with, you know, and, yeah. he, and he's very generous. He gives huge amounts of money in gifts to what we might think of as entertainers minstrels mm. you know uh, jongleurs and people oh, not those <laughs> medieval jugglers to turn up every film you know it's interesting you say that idea of going down the pub because one of the photo ops for charles's coronation was prince william and kate had a kind of day out where they traveled yes. on the tube and they went down the pub and it's really interesting that the modern monarchy is trying really really hard to say look we're just ordinary people like you whereas that was the worst thing you could do as a medieval monarch. You had to say, no, look, I'm a king. I'm above you. I'm this great figure. And and both of those are in order to get the consent of the people. It's what the people want. But now we want our monarchs, oh, they should just be like us. Um, whereas then it's like, no, we don't want the king to be like us. We want him to be the king. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very difficult. The modern monarchy trying to be like, you know, well, we're sort of the everyman. It's a very difficult line to tread, isn't it? Because mm. it's perilous. Because the, as you say, the whole concept of monarchy is by definition really claiming that one family or one man or one woman is fundamentally different to other people. You know, mm. and that's certainly what medieval monarchy was based on, this idea of sacral kingship being instituted by a god. And of course, medieval kings had spent centuries trying to promote this idea. Mm. <laughs> you know, we, we often have this idea that kings emerged from a system that in Latin is called primum inter pare, so, so first among equals. Mm. It's this idea that they're fundamentally not that different. But of course, you know, what the monarchy had done in England and, and elsewhere all around Europe is that they invested huge amounts of effort to, to try to convince people that they were not among equals, that they were just exalted above everybody else. And so, you know, for the modern monarchy to say, well, actually, we're, we're just kind of just like everybody else, obviously then leads to the comment, well, if you're just like everybody yeah. else, exactly. why are you the king? It's the, it's <laughs> right? the quickest route to disaster, really. Yeah, you can't be exalted and ordinary at the same time. It's, yes. it's very difficult to claim both things. Well, people of my age will remember it's a royal knockout, which could have been the end of the monarchy right there and then. For, the, for younger people listening and non-British... There was a TV show where people competed against each other doing wacky stunts and dressing up in ridiculous outfits. And for some reason, the younger royals, it was Andrew and Edward and 
Anne, I think, decided they would do a royal version. And the fact that the monarchy's recovered from that is, is pretty extraordinary. But anyway, I digress. So Edward, in many ways, he didn't seem to want to do the things that kings were supposed to do. He wasn't a great warrior. He didn't like leading an army. And you kind of think, did he really want to be king? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a good point. But I just don't think he was interested in, you know, being a medieval king was actually incredibly hard work. You have to think, first of all, you're trying to govern a realm with very limited communications technology. Yeah, I mean, you know, to travel mm. from the south coast up to, say, Newcastle or Berwick-upon-Tweed, you know, the sort of the border with the Scots, could take anywhere from two to four weeks, depending on weather and conditions. You're talking about letters, therefore, as the main method of communication, taking days or, or weeks to arrive. And although England was actually quite advanced in terms of its decentralization of government, you know, with sheriffs and justices of the peace and, and constables and et cetera, et cetera, the fact is, you know, it was a centralized system in as far as the monarch was the monarch. And so to try to govern that realm was incredibly hard work. The other challenge that faced kings, of course, was to maintain the relationships within their own aristocracy and their own nobility. You know, basically to be arbiters and to keep the peace within their own uh, milieu of, of competing interests. And again, this is what Edward just showed a complete disinclination. He doesn't seem to have been interested in the sort of the day-to-day -day workings of state. And as you know, tragically, his relationship with Gaveston and the likes of Hugh Dispenser show he very certainly wasn't interested in acting as a sort of a fair judge or a sort of a, a neutral between the competing interests mm. of his nobility. And that fundamentally was his main failing, because there were either two models of kingship, I would say, in the Middle Ages, either that you were a kind of a, a dominating micromanager like Edward I, or like perhaps even Henry V, who kept everybody in line, or you did enough to keep everybody pleased. And Edward didn't do either. He wasn't a micromanager. He mm. wasn't a dominating personality in terms of sort of leading from the front and governing. But then he also was not willing to keep everybody happy and just promoted a few of his favorites again mm. and again and again, and basically infuriated everybody else, 90% at least, of, of his magnates, which of course eventually led to his downfall. Yeah, and he just, in times of crisis, he basically said, oh, I just want to go and spend some time with peers. Yeah, I mean, he completely neglected relations or the crises really in Scotland. You know, we have to remember that at the, the beginning of Edward's reign, you know, he, he comes into the kingship in 1307. He's got a very large number of debts. He's over £200,000 in debts um, that's left to him by his father, which is a huge sum of money. I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds in today's terms. He has Robert the Bruce active in Scotland, who has you know, murdered Comyn and has declared himself king of the Scots and is you know, basically building his power base in the north. He's got as always, uh, fragile relations with France. Um, they're reasonably good in terms that he's just married a French princess, but you know it, it's always troubled waters. And yet he shows absolutely no inclination to take on any of these challenges. And actually his complete disinterest in confronting Bruce really allowed Robert the Bruce to 
confirm his power within Scotland and to expand it. Um, and eventually, of course, to inflict a horrific defeat on the English at Stirling at Bannockburn. And how involved in that campaign was Edward? Well, he was involved. He led the army. So the Edward doesn't appear to have been interested in campaigning on the whole, but he was, by all accounts, a decent soldier. Um, he's certainly not a coward. Um, he fought at Bannockburn and effectively he had to be dragged off the field. And he led a very large contingent. I mean, we estimate the army that he marched north was between fifteen and 20,000 men, which for a medieval army was incredibly large. Mm. What he didn't have, though, was, again, attention to detail. He didn't really seem to have any particular authority either, that we can see evidence of his barons competing with one another for leadership of the host. And effectively, you know, one of the reasons why Bannockburn is such a failure for the English is that there isn't a unified command, that a number of different barons basically take it upon themselves to engage the Scots and that leads to effectively a disaster because the Scots sort of take them out one by one. And then there's this huge sort of disorganized rush at the Scottish Schultrons, which are these kind of like huge pike formations, these kind of phalanxes. Mm. They get charged with heavy cavalry, but they're fighting over a bridge. They're fighting near a river and it all goes horrendously wrong. And, and, and Edward does have to take the blame for that because, again, he's unwilling to be a sort of a central commander, be a micromanager. And he's clearly not interested in, you know, studying things like strategy and tactics and stuff like that. You see all these kings that come to the throne, they make the same mistakes that have been made so many times before. I suppose they're all thinking, well, it'd be different with me. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is from paranoia. There's this kind of constant <laughs> sense that you have to crush your enemies and there's enemies everywhere and you have to exalt your friends and exalt yourself. And you can kind of see the, the rationale behind that. But very few of them really get the, the recipe right and, and manage mm. to retain a preeminent position themselves at the same time as making sure that all their magnates are happy as well. There's no doubt. I mean, it really was a tricky act to pull off, mm. but the, the best of them do it and, and the worst don't. Well, thank you so much, Rory, for giving me your time and talking me through all that. I could have talked for hours longer, but you need to get back to your history books and I'm going down the pub with Edward II. Thank you so much uh, for having me. That was great fun. That was brilliant. Thank you, Rory. That was Rory Cox, whose book, Origins of the Just War, Military Ethics and Culture in the Ancient Near East, is out October 2023. In the next episode, we'll see what happens when Edward's son, another Edward, takes the throne. And all is going swimmingly until an unwelcome visitor turns up from Europe the Black Death. Join me next time. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.